Welcome to Live and Let Drive, a podcast about driving safety from the New Mexico Department of Transportation. I'm your host, Rachel Kennedy. Today's episode is about drugged driving, which is a form of impaired driving. Any drug can impair driving, including legal prescription medication, as well as illicit street drugs like meth or heroin. For this episode, we will focus mostly on cannabis, since it was recently legalized for recreational use here in New Mexico. Our guest is Deputy Chief Charles Files, who has been at the forefront of this issue for several years. He has worked at the Los Lunas Police Department in New Mexico for over 14 years. Currently, he is the Highway Safety Specialist at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, also known as NHTSA. I can't think of a more qualified person to discuss drugged driving with. Thank you, Deputy Chief Files, for joining us today. Well, thank you very much for, for having me. It's an honor to be here. Your resume is impressive and quite long. It includes your work as the New Mexico State DRE Coordinator, DRE standing for a Drug Recognition Expert. Can you tell us what a DRE officer does and what a day on patrol looks like? Yeah, absolutely. And if it's okay, I'll kind of answer that question with, you know, what a DRE is. And I think that will help kind of set the the foundation here for what a DRE does on a daily basis. Um, So a a DRE, a drug recognition expert, is an officer, a law enforcement officer who is uh, trained and certified to identify impairment from substances other than or in addition to alcohol. They go through an extensive training, which we can talk about here in a bit if you'd like, to receive this certification to become a drug recognition expert. So their day-to-day is going to look probably different each day, Um, just like any law enforcement officer will tell you. I think uh, there's no no routine day in, in law enforcement. There's no routine day as a drug recognition expert. So... A DRE is probably going to be one of those officers at an agency that's uh, very involved in impaired driving enforcement. So they may be attached to a traffic unit or a DWI unit if the agency has that. And their job is, you know, simply to to go out and enforce traffic laws and enforce impaired driving laws as they come into contact with impaired drivers. DREs are also a resource for their own agency. So another officer who is not a DRE may arrest somebody who they believe is impaired and maybe they bring this person back and their their breath alcohol content is um, not consistent with the impairment that the, the officer saw, uh, they can call the DRE in to uh, do an evaluation for them. DRE may be a resource for surrounding agencies as well. So, you know, for example, for me, I'm from Las Lunas Police Department, as, as you mentioned. I was one of three DREs. We would oftentimes assist Valencia County Sheriff's Department, Boleyn Police Department, Bosque Farms Police Department. New Mexico State Police, any surrounding agencies if they needed a DRE, um, and and we had one available. So, so, you know, every day is going to be a little different for for what a drug recognition expert is is going to do uh, out on patrol. So you mentioned that an officer that arrests somebody for impaired driving and say the blood alcohol level isn't isn't consistent to what they're seeing and they call you in, what does your evaluation look like? What do you do to know if that person is impaired? with something other than alcohol. Absolutely. So it's it's a 12-step uh, standardized and systematic evaluation. So it's done the same. Um, ideally, it's done the same each and every time. Um, there may be instances where uh, DRE needs to deviate, and, and they can articulate that in their, in their report and in their opinion. Um, but typically, it's done the same each and every time. Um, it's, it includes uh, an interview with the arresting officer. Um, you know, what did, what did you see out there that was not consistent with, you know, um, the motoring public that you typically come into contact with. What is it that led you to arrest this person for DWI? Um, and then kind of an interview with the subject. Um, and that goes over everything like 
medications that they may be on, any medical conditions that they may have, because drug impairment can look a lot like a medical condition sometimes. Um, so we want to make sure we're ruling out the medical issue as soon as possible, because if it is a medical issue and we have many stories of many times that it has been, um, we want to take care of that and we want to do the right thing and get them the medical help that, that they need. Going further into the evaluation, the DRE is going to look at uh, several psychophysical tests. So um, they may have them estimate 30 seconds in their head um, because drugs do different things to the internal body clock, for an example. Um, after that, they may take them into a, uh, a dark room and look at their pupils and see what their pupils are doing in the, the dark room and in the direct light. Uh, there are drugs out there, drug categories that want to uh, dilate or make the pupils bigger. If there's something, you know, when you shine a, a direct light in somebody's eye, the officer is going to be able to see that something is trying to make that pupil bigger, even with the direct light right in the eye. They're going to observe any uh, muscle tone, injection sites, anything like that, um, and just do an overall interview. And and by the end of it, it's about 45 minutes to an hour long. Um, by the end of it, the, the DRE probably has a pretty good idea of what category or categories the individual is impaired on, if the individual is impaired. And, and so uh, they'll do an interview with them at the end and they'll say, hey, you know, I think you're using this and this is why I think that. And uh, oftentimes, you know, when confronted like that, um, the individual will, will be truthful about what they were using. And what kind of drugs do you come across most often in New Mexico? Oh, boy. So it's, it's very, um, it's funny, it's jurisdictional. Um, obviously, cannabis has, has been number one for a while. Um, but it's, it's often followed by and very close second is either depressants, so like Xanax, Alprazolam, or stimulants. So methamphetamine being the big one. Um, after that, uh, narcotic analgesics, which include all the opiates, so heroin. We're seeing fentanyl now is, is a big issue now. But primarily, like I said, it's jurisdictional. So up north, we're seeing way more of the narcotic analgesics. Down south, we're seeing way more of the stimulants. And in the metro area, um, the alprazolam is just huge. Um, Xanax is the drug of choice right now, I guess. So we'll see that. We'll see it mixed with cannabis. We'll see it mixed with fentanyl. Um, but but that probably, Alprazolam probably takes the, the cake for number one in the uh, metro area. And your evaluation, is there any kind of breathalyzer type test that you can give people for, say, um, THC? So no, um, that technology is just not here yet. Uh, we do give a breathalyzer test for alcohol because we have to rule out the, the alcohol is causing the impairment. Um Unfortunately, there's there one the technology isn't there to to measure THC in somebody's breath, um, but there there are other ways to measure THC in somebody's system, such as a blood draw. Right. The problem with that is, you're no matter what their measurement is, you're not going to be able to correlate any specific number with impairment, like we have with alcohol. Right. We have research that has been done, and I think we can all agree and come to the table and say, hey, if you're at a .08 you're impaired and shouldn't be driving, right? 0.05 in Utah. Um, we don't have that with drugs. And the reason we don't have that is because drugs are incredibly complex. What they do to the human body is, is incredibly complex. Depending on the person, uh, their body weight, even their gender, um, their tolerance to the drug. I mean, there, there's no way to say that if I took this amount of, of THC, I'm gonna be safe to drive, but this person took that amount, um, then they're safe to drive. Um, that's why we, we can't really put an, a magic number on it just yet. And I imagine a lot of people are taking more than one substance at a time. 
we do see we call that poly drug or poly category, and we do see that in our in our tox results. Um, cannabis is is we call it like the the ranch dressing. It goes great with everything. So we do see cannabis a lot in our our blood uh, results. In addition to the alprazolam um, uh, that I was mentioning, the heroin, the the methamphetamine that we're seeing. Have you seen an increase in drivers under the influence of cannabis? I know it's only been about seven months. It has. So I I pulled those numbers um, in anticipation for that question. I pulled the numbers from April 1st from 2021 to uh, November 3rd. So I pulled the numbers yesterday, um, 2021, and and 46% of our evals included cannabis. April 1st being when we went live with it here in New Mexico. I pulled that uh, for 2022 to yesterday. Um, 52%. So I, we, we are seeing a slight increase, as you can imagine. And that was kind of predictable, right? We, we knew we were going to see higher numbers. We're, we're going to see more cannabis. But to what extent, there was no way to, to predict that. So that's where we're at now. Well, before cannabis was legalized for recreational use here, um, it had been in Colorado and in Washington State. Sure. So we can look at the numbers there and kind of get an idea from that. Uh, what have you been able to parse from the statistics in those states to anticipate what we might see here? Right. Great question. So, of course, we have to look at other states because we can't really predict what's going to happen here. So, um, as you mentioned, 2012 is when they legalized in Washington State and Colorado. So, the first note to take on that is that this isn't new. You know, we, we kind of started getting in panic mode when we knew we saw where the legislation was going and we knew what was going to happen. As far as traffic safety advocates, we're like, oh, oh we're, we're, we're about to be in trouble. Well, you know, we can take a step back and, and take a sigh of relief because we do have other states that have been through this already and we can kind of follow their steps and, 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 you know, pick up what worked for them and what didn't work for them. So Washington State actually did a couple uh, studies, one with AAA, which is a great uh, traffic safety advocate. Um, and the other through their their traffic safety commission. And what they looked at in um, is they looked at how many people were testing positive for THC and their fatalities um, before the legalization and two years after the, the legalization. So um, in 2010 for Washington State, they had 8.3% of the, all their fatalities had THC in there. Now, let me put a disclaimer that just because THC is in the blood doesn't necessarily mean that they were impaired. And that's another that's another obstacle that we have with this kind of data is we don't have that magic number to say that impairment was was present, but it was in the blood, right? Um, they legalized in 2012, and then they look at it again, and it's uh, in 2014 it's 16.5 percent, so doubled um, how many people had THC in their system. What they did is they looked at a four year period as well. So uh, AAA looked at 2008 to 2012, and 2012 being when they legalized. And in that four-year period, they had 8.8% of fatal drivers testing positive for THC. Then they looked at 2013 to 2017, um, and that r- rate uh, rose to 18%. So again, um, you know, 10% more. It's we're we're seeing more cannabis in uh, fatal driving crashes. Well, we all know not to drink and drive, but people aren't aware of the dangers of driving high. Surveys have shown, and we will put those surveys in our show notes. Um, so people can read them. But marijuana users believe that they actually drive better high. <laughs> they think that they're being more careful. They're not. So how does cannabis affect one's driving? Well, one is their perception, right? And you just gave a great example of that. They think that they can drive better, right? Well, that's that's impairment, letting them know that they think they, they can drive better. Um, another is their judgment, Um 
reaction time is is a huge impact of cannabis on the brain. And so these are all things that you kind of want to have, you know, be on your A game with when you're operating a 3,000 pound, you know, potentially weapon if it's not used correctly, right? So it affects the psychomotor skills and it affects their ability to know the risk right. in what they're doing. Exactly, which is incredibly dangerous, right? They may feel like that they're okay to drive. They may feel like that they're they're driving better, but um, the bottom line is, unfortunately, that's that's the THC talking to them and making them think that way. And sometimes it, it doesn't it doesn't affect them right away. So right. especially with edibles, um, it's known that if you take an edible, it might not you might not start feeling the effects of it until like an hour or two later. So you could get in the car thinking that you're perfectly fine. And then an hour after driving, you're you're too high to drive. Yes, very, very common thing. Um, that's a great scenario with edibles. The other is, you know, they don't feel anything for an hour, two hours, so they take another one or, or another two. Um, and then all of a sudden they're, you know, can barely open their eyes. So, um, yeah, edibles are, are, are very dangerous in, in that, you know, if, if they're not being used correctly, you're not following the, the I guess, manufacturer's um, guidance on it. Um, it can it can get you in a bad place real quick. Well, the New Mexico Department of Transportation launched an awareness campaign in anticipation of the dangers of drug driving from cannabis after um, it would be legalized here for recreational use. And uh, there's a video called Excuses, and we'll include a link to the video um, from the campaign uh, in our show notes. And it's kind of funny because, you know, stone people are funny. Um, and it shows officers pulling over drivers and listening to all their excuses. Um, of course, it it ends with them being arrested and placed in the back of the police car. But I mean, I'm sure you've seen everything. Are there any examples that stick out in your mind that you can share with us? Yes, <laughs> I have one that, that I love to share um, at any training or any any presentation I get a chance to. This is prior to the um, legalization of recreational cannabis in New Mexico. We were working a checkpoint in Las Lunas, um, and I was on the line, meaning I was talking to the the drivers as they would pull up to the to the checkpoint. Um, and and we had this car very 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 slowly um, pull up to to the checkpoint and stop where where I asked them to stop, which is where I was standing, and uh, just. The driver's hands were 10 and 2. I could tell I was a younger kid. Um, eyes looking straight ahead. Um, and I could I could already see like the smoke inside the, the vehicle. Um, so he he didn't want to look at me. So I knock on the window. He looked at me. Um, and the smoke, it's like the Cheech and Chong shows, right? It's just like comes billowing out. Like it's amazing I didn't get a contact high type thing. <laughs> um, so we go through the whole thing. Uh, we go through the, the DWI investigation. He was showing multiple indicators of impairment. So he was placed under arrest for DWI. Um, I take him back to the police department. We're doing a, a DRE. And, and he's just like incredibly cooperative through the entire episode. Um, and and even at the end, we get to the interview and, and he tells me, I, I know not to drink and drive. I, I absolutely 100% would never do that. I see the commercials all the time. I had no idea you could get a DWI for driving while while you were high. And he said, what happened was I had uh, like half a joint in my ashtray. When I seen the lights for the checkpoint, I grabbed it and I smoked it because I didn't want to go to jail for being in possession of the the, the marijuana in the ashtray. <laughs> so um, that one always sticks with me. And again, he was a great kid. He had no uh, criminal history or anything like that. Um, uh, so 
we 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 worked with him the best we could um but because i truly believe he he had no idea and that's that's not so much a fault of his as you know we just back then weren't really um weren't really super active with letting people know that like hey the dwi is more than alcohol so so what's the importance of awareness campaigns to educate the public about that driving impaired is more than just alcohol it's also drugs especially cannabis they're they're huge it's it's everything right um we have to get that word out one way or another um i've i've taught law enforcement for you know probably 10 plus years on this topic and i've even had police officers that were unaware that you could get a dwi on something other than alcohol so um we we have we had a lot of work to do. I think what we're doing now is is great. We can we can always do more when it comes to public awareness, though, and and these these awareness campaigns. People just sometimes don't don't get it until it's too late, right? And and that's what we want to avoid is somebody getting. When I say too late, you know, I don't necessarily mean just getting arrested for DWI. I mean getting in a crash and hurting themselves or somebody else. Right. And what else can be done to deter or prevent drugged driving besides awareness campaigns? That maybe isn't being done now. Um, our law enforcement needs to be trained, um, and that that that's something that the New Mexico DRE program has done and, and continues to do. I think they do a great job of it now. Um, but they have to get they have to be trained in. They don't have to all be DREs, but they have to know what to look for with substances other than alcohol. Um, and, and can any officer arrest somebody for a DWI for drug driving? Do they have to be a DRE officer? No, not at all. And I, I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, they do not need to be a DRE to make an arrest for, for impaired driving, no matter what the substance was that was impairing them. But they have to they have to be able to recognize those things because, you know, when they go to the basic police academy, it's, it's relatively, it's either 24 hours, 32 or 40 hours that they get in the academy on DWI investigations. A lot of times it's the 24 hours because the academy's got to be as quick, you know, as, as they got to get officers turned out and, and on the streets as quickly as possible. So if you can do the 24 hours, just do the 24 hours. So that that's not enough time. Um, and, and the basic academy DWI curriculum is really heavily based on alcohol, not so much on drugs. So they don't, they get out there and they get to the street and they have somebody who they, they know, you know, they pull somebody over and they know something's not right with this person. But I don't have an odor of alcohol like I was taught in the academy. I don't have slurred speech like I was taught in the academy. I don't have bloodshot, watery eyes like I was taught in the academy. So, you know, maybe it's something else. Maybe they're just tired and down the road they go. So we got to do a better job at making sure these officers understand that, you know, it's more than just those indicators that you learned in the basic academy. There's multiple things that you can see with somebody on on drugs. Additionally, um, our prosecutors and our judges um, could be trained, right? What are the officers looking for out there? We got it. We there's a huge gap between between what the officers are looking for, the the highly trained officers who who know what to look for in a drug DWI, and prosecutors who are supposed to be prosecuting these cases, and judges who are going to make render a, a verdict one way or another. They have to understand what the officers are looking for out there, right? Um, so we got to get we got to get that training out there. We got to get that awareness out there, and you know accountability and that that you know. That starts in Santa Fe. Um, so maybe, you know, a little bit stronger legislation, I think, would kind of deter people from driving drugged or or drunk. Um, Drug-impaired driving is very complex, like I mentioned. So it's it's very, it's it's get, just getting the the proper education to the proper, to the right people. And I, I think then we can do a better job of preventing it. 
Now, if there isn't a breathalyzer test, it would be the officer's word against the driver. So when that goes to court, um, do you need? Do they need some kind of um, evidence besides that in order to make a conviction? That's that's one of the obstacles that that we're dealing with because judges and juries do like that scientific evidence, right? There is an element of science that goes into to this. In DUI drug cases, the science we're talking about is primarily blood, right? Blood results. The issue with that is, and and we kind of touched on it earlier, you may have blood results back, right? And the argument's going to be, well, you know, the, my client sm- smokes marijuana. It's legal, right? That's why it's in their blood. It stays in their blood for sometimes a month, right? That's going to be the, the first argument. What we're trying to do is show that somebody was impaired. So, we have to go back to what the officer's observations were, right? Any and the the investigation as a whole, um, the officer has to really be able to articulate everything that he or she saw, heard, smelt, that really just you know kind of fired off something that said this isn't right, and I need to continue on with the DWI investigation. And then the DWI investigation happens, and they get to the point where they're like, okay, this person should not be driving down the road, and they have to be able to articulate that in court because the blood results. May or may not, you know, there maybe there's nothing in the blood. Why? Because the the labs have limitations; they can't test for everything, right? There's so many reasons why the blood results are not indicative of impairment, and unfortunately, it's just in the in the courts. Yes, defense attorneys, the judges, they really want to see something scientific, but it just isn't there yet for DWI drug cases. Somebody who does consume cannabis responsibly, recreationally, um, now that it's legal. Uh, what is your advice to them that they want to do it? They want to do it responsibly. Uh, how long should they wait before they drive? That's really tough. That's incredibly tough because everybody's going to be a little bit different. I think Colorado um, they tried uh, six hours if it's like thirty-five milligrams of THC or less, right? I mean, who's really measuring what, how much THC they're 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 consuming? We can't really do that because they're, again, everybody's going to be a little bit different. You may have somebody who is very tolerant to THC um, or cannabis that smokes every single day, that smokes a whole joint and may be good to drive after eight hours, maybe, right? Say you have somebody else who is not tolerant to THC or cannabis who has not smoked marijuana in, let's say, 20 years and they smoke that same joint, the same amount of of marijuana, Um they're probably going to be out for a day or so, right? And unsafe to drive. So it's good. It's going to be different with everybody. Um, we just keep in mind, you know, that your perception is impaired when when you're using THC. So, um, you know, safest bet, I'd say 24 hours, just because I'll throw a number out there if you need a number. Um, and I would definitely want to make it broader than, than uh, limit it, but it's going to be different for, for everybody for sure. And there's so many other options now. There's rideshare, there's right. taxis. Um, you could have somebody as a designated driver. Right, right. So probably best to be prudent yes. and not drive at all if you're going to be consuming. Absolutely. Now you're working at NHTSA, the National Highway Transit Safety Administration, as the highway safety specialist. What does this position entail? Yes, yeah, so um, I work in the Enforcement and Justice Services Division of NHTSA. Um, so I'm based out of headquarters in D.C. Um, and my role is is really to develop 
and manage programs that are going to support law enforcement nationwide in doing um, traffic safety efforts, whether it's, you know, DWI, which is kind of my specialty, but um, also, um, you know, distracted driving, drowsy driving, you know, speeding, uh, occupant protection, all that stuff. Um, so, yeah, my role is uh, to manage uh, existing programs that, you know, we have with our, our partners and also to kind of try to be innovative and develop programs that, that are going to assist law enforcement. So with drugged driving, uh, since every state has different laws uh, for cannabis use, are the approaches to drug driving state specific or do you have something on the national level um, that you promote? So they, yeah, they are. They're, the autonomy of the states um, exists, and and that's very important because states have different issues, right? Um, different states are going to have different issues depending on on so many different variables out there. So it it is very state specific. But the role of NHTSA is to um, be a resource for for all those states, um, partner with the state highway safety offices um, and and other federal and non federal organizations. We rely heavily on state data that's reported to us every year um, and studies that, that we conduct to determine how best to deploy resources that are available. Um, this new bipartisan infrastructure bill that just got passed is um, is also going to help us provide additional funding for uh, enforcement. So, you know, there's yeah, there's a lot of lot of different variables out there. But um, I guess if you had to sum it up in one word, the, the, the role of, of NHTSA on a national level is to be a resource. Terrific. Is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to discuss? Um, just if we could reiterate, you know, impairment is impairment, regardless of, of where it comes from. Um, and and that's, I, I hope anybody out there that's that's listening that maybe didn't know that you could get a DWI from your prescription um, now knows that, or that you could get a DWI from cannabis now knows that. Um, it can come from, you know, thousands of different substances that are out there. And, and they're dangerous on the road. So um, there's a lot of moving parts to this goal of ending DWI. Um, but I think if we, and we have, and we continue to get the right people to the table, um, we definitely have a real legitimate shot of ending DWI in New Mexico. Right. Well, thank you for your service and helping keep our roads safe. It's Absolutely. important. And uh, I really appreciate you being here. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. Thank you, Deputy Chief Charles Files from the National Highway Transit Safety Administration. Please see our show notes for links to studies on drugged driving and videos from the New Mexico Department of Transportation's Drugged Driving Awareness Campaign. This podcast was recorded by Sid Fenley at Mountain Road Recording Studio, Albuquerque, New Mexico.